It's Friday, January 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Omicron surge is putting a heavy strain on hospitals around the country, with many hospital workers themselves testing positive, forcing them to stay home. To help with serious staffing shortages, California is implementing a temporary and controversial new policy that allows asymptomatic healthcare workers who have tested positive to return to work immediately. Haley Smith, reporter at the LA Times, joins us for COVID-positive medical workers staying on the job. Next, the disruptions from the latest COVID surge continue as college campuses are changing plans for the start of the semester. In-person instruction has been delayed, boosters are being mandated, and they're even restricting student travel. Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, businesses are still having a hard time gaining new employees and are looking to automation and cashierless checkouts to stay in business with fewer or no employees. New startups are now even able to outfit any small business with AI-powered checkout systems. Erica Pandy, business reporter at Axios, joins us for how the future of Main Street could be one without workers. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Some experts said this decision was a, a necessary solution to this critical understaffing problem right, that we're having right now. But um, the decision was met pretty instantly with outrage and anger from a lot of people in the healthcare industry yeah. who said it's dangerous for workers and, and potentially for the patients that they treat. Joining us now is Haley Smith, reporter at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Haley. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about something that's interesting uh, going on in California hospitals. You know, we've been talking a lot about the Omicron variant and all the disruptions that have been happening. A lot of people are getting sick. People are calling out sick from work. They're having to quarantine for a number of days until they can get their negative tests. It's causing a lot of disruptions to services, uh, especially in our hospitals, which are already overtaxed with people that are sick with COVID, people that are just going in for regular illnesses and maintenance and all that. It's becoming a problem so much so that California is coming up with a new policy change to let nurses who might have tested positive for coronavirus, they could be asymptomatic, but to let them return to work. So they could be positive for the virus and still report to work. Uh, Haley, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, as you mentioned, Omicron is really sweeping through the population. Um, It is creating an influx of new patients in our hospitals, but it's also critically taking a lot of healthcare workers out of commission. And so that means doctors and nurses, but it's also all kinds of staff members, housekeepers, cleaning crews, people who answer the phones, even the lab workers who are processing tests. So what the California Department of Public Health decided to do was institute this temporary but sweeping policy change that allows asymptomatic healthcare workers who have tested positive for the coronavirus to return to work immediately without testing and without isolation. Some experts said this decision was a a necessary solution to this critical understaffing problem that we're having right now, but um, the decision was met pretty instantly with outrage and anger from a lot of people in the healthcare industry who said it's dangerous for workers and, and potentially for the patients that they treat. I mean, they're placing a lot of trust, it seems, on masks and masking, right? Uh, that's one of the main things. And then the, I guess another part of the guidelines is, you know, they want the people, the nurses that are positive to hopefully at least only work with COVID positive people. 
Right. I mean, that's the hope, but there's really no way to guarantee that. I mean, if you've got short staffing in a department, you're going to need whatever workers you can get. But I spoke to several nurses and healthcare workers in reporting this story. One of them told me she's seen coronavirus positive workers attending to chemo patients, women in labor, patients in the NICU. So it's certainly a scary prospect here. But to your point, I think that what hospitals are trying to do is weigh the risks here, right? Like what's worse to be seen by an asymptomatic worker or to not be seen by anyone at all. And we've already heard about people waiting 20 hours to get into the hospitals. We've heard about ambulances being diverted away. So like you said, this may be the lesser of two evils, but it's pretty scary. I did pose the question, though, to an epidemiologist because I wanted someone smarter than me to weigh in on the science of what you just mentioned, you know, the masks and the safety here and what the risk actually is here. And he said that if a worker is asymptomatic, which means they're not coughing, they don't have a fever, they feel perfectly normal other than this positive test, and they're wearing an N95 mask and practicing all the other safety precautions that they can, the risk is pretty minimal. But even he said we should move away from this sort of extraordinary measure as soon as possible. We're talking about hospital systems being overloaded. And, and it's not just the case mm-hmm. because so many people are going to the hospital with severe COVID infection. You know, a lot of this has to do with staff testing positive and then they have to call out, right? You got to get taken out of action mm-hmm. in, in there. So this is what's causing the burdens on the hospital system right now. But we are seeing still, you know, lesser of these serious infections going on. That's right. And that's what's really striking about this wave compared to earlier surges of the pandemic, we are seeing fewer patients who are severely ill. This doesn't mean that people aren't dying. This doesn't mean that people aren't in the ICU or on ventilators. Um, The majority of those people are unvaccinated. So that is still happening. But yeah, the big change here is that the sort of overload in the healthcare system is really the worker shortage and not necessarily a huge flood of very ill patients. So that's kind of where we're at. And and as you referenced earlier, there have been studies and data about understaffing. And we do know that understaffing can result in more deaths, more morbidity, more accidents and errors. So it's dangerous for patients to be in a hospital where the staff is really overworked and there's not enough people there. But again, it's also like, well, how dangerous is it to be treated by an asymptomatic worker? That's the math we're trying to do. A lot of the resistance, you said there was a lot of resistance. A lot of it's coming from uh, nursing groups, uh, unions, things like that. So it seems like they're still trying to fight this, at least. Absolutely. The unions are really upset about this. And the nurses that I spoke to, I mean, they're concerned. They run the gamut. Some of them have specific fears about passing the coronavirus on to their patients. Some healthcare workers said they're really worried that it would increase the risk to their loved ones at home. Others said it was hypocritical of the state to ask coronavirus positive staffers to report for duty after instituting a vaccine mandate that costs them workers their jobs. So there are, you know, a myriad of responses to this, but generally it's been a lot of outrage on behalf of the workers. Haley Smith, reporter at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. We're going to start online. We're going to delay by a week. We're going to try to make sure that the area hospitals that are already strained don't get overwhelmed by having thousands more people come into the community. Joining us now is Melissa Korn, 
higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about what's happening with the latest Omicron surge and what's happening with colleges right now. You know, we saw it kind of right after the holiday break with regular schools, you know, uh, kids, you know, grade school and whatnot, the big disruptions that were happening. And it's happening on college campuses, too. They're ripping up all their plans to start the semester. And a lot of them are doing remote learning to begin with and leaving the plans open ended. You know, they really don't know what's going on with all the latest numbers. So, Melissa, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? Yeah, so a lot of schools had had fairly successful fall terms. Yes, there were cases, but not huge outbreaks across tons of campuses. And they, as that semester wound down, they felt like they were in pretty good shape to have students come back for the spring. And many schools sent out notices right before or even right after Christmas saying, come back to campus on this date. Classes will start two days later. Look forward to seeing you. And then with Omicron, as the numbers just kept ticking up and up and up, a lot of schools have pulled the plug on that and said it, it would be irresponsible, imprudent, impractical, those sorts of, that sort of language to bring everyone back. We're going to start online. We're going to delay by a week. We're going to try to make sure that the area hospitals that are already strained don't get overwhelmed by having thousands more people come into the community. So the other thing they're you know, they're ramping up saying maybe we're going to require people to get booster shots, uh, maybe changing the mask requirements to have more uh, those of the tighter fitting masks like the KN95s and so forth. And they're also imposing some travel restrictions on students saying once you get into campus or something, don't go anywhere anymore. Yeah, so they're saying once you're on campus, let's try to create as much of a bubble as we can so as not to potentially put at risk the greater community. You know, college campuses are often in the middle of towns or cities. And also that way you minimize the chance of bringing something back onto campus. So Princeton is encouraging or has asked that undergraduates not leave the county. They're going to kind of revisit that in about a month. Yale University said that students should abide by what they're calling a campus-wide quarantine for a few weeks, saying, you know, don't even go off campus to eat, even if it's at an outdoor dining establishment. Just right. just don't do it. That, that one was pretty extreme, the, this quarantine one. They, like you said, no local businesses, restaurants, bars, not even outdoor dining. They said, don't do any of that one. Yeah, so they likened it to the precautions that a lot of students took before heading home for the winter break. People who just kind of locked themselves down for a week before heading back home, they're saying, you know, you wanted to protect your families over the vacation. Well, we want to protect the New Haven community. There are some colleges that are going forth with their original plans and are doing the in-person instruction. I think Dartmouth College was one of them. Absolutely. There are a number of schools that are going forward as planned. Some have, you know, their academic calendars have them started classes last week, others in the next week or two. And a lot of the schools that are going forward have increased their mitigation efforts with upgraded mask requirements, booster shot mandates, more testing required. So they're doing what they can while bringing people on campus. You know, the University of Michigan started back up in person. And one of the comments that their provost had was, two weeks seems kind of arbitrary. You don't know that things are going to be better two weeks from now. And as she pointed out, and this is the case at a lot of schools, even if classes are online, a lot of students still come back to town anyway. They want to be with their friends. So having them not sit in the classroom isn't necessarily going to make things safer. 
How are these college campuses handling testing? Because I know they had gotten some pretty robust testing programs before, but are they still going those same ways? Are they using these rapid tests? What are they doing? So a lot of schools are offering to send a rapid test to students so that they can use it before they depart and head to campus. Others are requiring testing upon arrival, and the school is providing the tests for that, whether they're rapid tests or the kind of slightly slower PCR tests, although many of them have arrangements where they can get results for those within 12 to 24 hours. So you just kind of have to stay sitting in your dorm room for a little while. And they're saying, you know, yes, we're going to test you when you get here, and we're going to ramp up testing, whether it's surveillance testing or more tests for everybody. They're ramping that back up after having found that they could, in some cases, slow down. You know, some schools that had been doing three times a week or twice a week felt once a week had been enough in the fall. Now they're going back up to more frequent tests to try to contain this as much as possible. You know, what's the reaction from students with this, all this topsy-turvy stuff constantly going around? It depends on who you ask. Uh, You ask 10, they'll have 10 different takes on the changes at their schools, but they obviously want to stay safe themselves and understand the risks that they might be bringing in that would affect other people, that it's not just the fact that they're likely going to have relatively mild cases if they were to get sick, but that their faculty or their, the staff at their school or you know, the person at the restaurant down the street might not come through as well as they would. And they, there's an understanding of that, but there's also a frustration that many of them just have not had what we would consider a normal college experience for years now. And right. they miss that. They want that. And they're frustrated that the rules keep changing. Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So you can see, you know, you might say, okay, cashierless is is a very futuristic concept. How soon will that really spread everywhere? With companies like startups like this that can really kind of put it on any old store without making it their store, it could spread quite fast. Joining us now is Erica Pandy. Business reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Erica. Thanks for having me. I wanted to take a look at uh, what's going on in the labor market and with businesses and what could be happening in the near future. We could be seeing a main street without workers, so to speak. Businesses with increasingly less staff and in some cases, maybe no staff. We've been seeing what's going on with the great resignation. The service industry has taken a huge hit. People looking for bigger other opportunities and, uh, you know, some of these businesses are, are left with less people and the, the share of people who want a job isn't rising very fast right now. So a lot of businesses are turning to this cashierless checkout style of business to see if they can remain open. So, Erica, tell us a little more about this. Right. So, you know, as, as workers have become more scarce, uh, you know, a lot of people aren't looking for a job, whether that's because, you know, they fear for their health because COVID's still out there or they've got savings from when they were furloughed. And you saw businesses try to up wages. So naturally, you're now seeing them try to figure out, okay, can I stay open without workers? So yeah, you're seeing a lot of retailers try these cashierless options. And you know, the the few staff they do have might be out on the floor, but the checkout is happening without without anybody there. And this tech was obviously developing way before the pandemic, you know, with Amazon's Go stores, that was the biggest example, the just walk out method. But there are also 
some less high-tech cashierless options. There's also self-checkout, which we see at you know all kinds of grocery stores. And now you're seeing retailers like Kohl's, like DSW, that maybe hadn't tried this before the pandemic, but are kind of seeing the light of it now with this labor shortage. And, you know, what this means, though, for the future of some of these businesses, one of the people you spoke to, you know, when talking about automation, you know, they say once you automate a job, it's pretty hard to turn back. So it kind of fundamentally changes those businesses, too. Right. I mean, that's what worries me, because right now a lot of people are putting their families, their health, their kids first. You know, they might not be taking a job because of childcare, because of COVID, whatever it may be. But they might need these jobs in the future when things start to go back to whatever normal is, whenever that is. And then the fear is that these jobs that are now being automated away might not exist then. That's the long term fear here. And also just from a Main Street vitality standpoint, you know, we're used to bustling Main Street. In addition to these these options of, for retailers to have fewer employers, you're seeing delivery take off. And a lot of places are just turning their stores or their groceries into mini warehouses to just carry out delivery orders. Like I'm thinking of DoorDash's new option in, in New York City. So you're seeing these dark stores as well. Okay, so let's talk about some of these options. You mentioned the Amazon Go stores and the cashierless stores. There's actually a startup, which I thought was pretty interesting. So they're called Standard Cognition, and they can outfit any small store with this AI-powered checkout thing. And while these uh, bigger chains, you know, you need hundreds of cameras to make this flow smoothly, this company can do it with like 27 cameras. So, uh, you know, obviously the, the technological footprint is a lot smaller, leaves it access to more people, too. Right. I mean, you know, Amazon Go is an Amazon thing and and you'll see them put the technology into their own stores, into their grocery stores, whatever it may be. Standard cognition is interesting because, like you said, they've got cashierless tech in a box, basically. They can bring it to any mom and pop and set it up. And it's much less expensive and much less tech heavy. So you can see, you know, you might say, OK, cashierless is, is a very futuristic concept. How soon will that really spread everywhere with companies like startups like this that can really kind of put it on any old store without making it their store? It could spread quite fast. You made mention in the article that some places were trying even more of a hands off approach, almost kind of an honor system. And this is Little City Books in Hoboken, New Jersey, where they basically said, you know, browse around, grab what you want. They left it up to the person to calculate, uh, I guess, taxes and whatnot. And then they were just saying, just Venmo us the money. You know, I, maybe it could work for them. But I think overall, the business itself couldn't sustain uh, enough uh, volume to support it. Right. I mean, that to me was was kind of what prompted me to write this story. I, I'm, I'm a Hoboken resident and I visited Little City Books. And it's wild to me that that's how far we've gotten in this labor shortage that stores would even try something like the honor system. And yeah, they told me that, you know, having people calculate their own taxes, Venmo, just come into the bookstore, pick out and then pay the store was actually working. But like you said, not enough foot traffic in general, because, you know, all stores are suffering from that. But like the honor system is such a creative, cool approach. It really kind of builds a sense of community, but it would only work in in a small community where people know each other. It's it's a very risky model. So but it, it, it does say a lot about the length stores are willing to go to kind of stay open without workers, though. Erica Pandy, business reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.